living in New York City, I mean, I think maybe it's like this for anyone, but in a city of 8 million people, it was very easy to find people who drank every day and do cocaine on the weekend. So I thought, oh, this is normal. This is what everyone does. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast. If you're looking to hear stories of hope, inspiration, and turning your greatest adversities into your advantage, well, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Jason Lachance, and through my addiction recovery and struggles with anxiety and depression, I dug into my passion of speaking with people who have transformed their lives. Ryan Wisenat, thank you for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Absolutely. Well, I, I know you've listened to some episodes, so you know where we start. Gratitude. Three things you're grateful for today. You know, today in particular, I'm so grateful for my health. I actually just found out a really good friend of mine who seems, you know, on the surface, everything is great. She has double pneumonia and is in a coma, not to bring us to like a dark place from the start. And I I take my health, just my health, my basic health for granted. And today I'm very grateful for that. The fact that I'm talking, that I can move, that I can breathe. Uh, we have high hopes. Everything's going to be okay. But uh, that's number one, my health, <laughs> my health. What else? My recovery. I'm so grateful for my recovery and uh, having an opportunity to talk to you is really special, especially having seen the Natanya episode, <laughs> one of my best friends. Uh, yeah. Well, we're going to get into that uh, a little bit later on. Of course, the work you've done with your film, Wrath Mercy, how you're working in treatment. But I, I, I'm, uh, you know, we were chatting it up before we hit the record button here. And uh, I'm always just fascinated by people's childhood. You, tell me about little Brian. Like, what was home like growing up? Were you in a home of addiction? Little Brian looks just like me, <laughs> just a little <laughs> smaller. You know, when I got clean, I talked a lot about how I grew up in a very happy middle-class family in Mississippi, because I would hear stories of people who really struggled. But over the years doing the work, I see like, I see that I grew up in a family where the white picket fence was more important than what was happening behind the fence. Mm. Uh, so I grew up in a family where we didn't talk about money issues. We didn't talk about trauma. We didn't talk about any of the things that were uh, not white picket fence mentality. It was like almost like a bad lifetime movie of Mississippi. That's the truth of my growing up. <laughs> but, you know, I, I did have it okay, except for the fact that my parents... Um, you know, I grew up in a very religious household and I'm, I'm gay. And so that was, that was always a dark cloud over me, even before I knew I was gay. Mm. Uh, neither one of my parents are addicts. I've seen my dad drink twice. My mom, once I pressured her so much one New Year's Eve to drink champagne that I led my mother to drink for the only time I ever saw her drink. But both of my grandfathers uh, were alcoholics. Um, my mother's father, we don't talk a lot about him. My grandmother was married seven times. I think her last marriage was in her 80s. <laughs> um, and my mom's dad was not a good man. That's what, mm -hmm. like I said, that we don't go past the what He was not a good man, my mom says. My father's father was, you know, the type of person I got into a relationship with, which was the kindest, most loving person before the third drink. Uh. That's what I always was told about uh, my grandfather. Um, but yeah, I guess my parents, it skipped them, skipped my sister. My sister is so innocent. <laughs> we, even before I really drank, when we were in high school, I remember my my sister, she's six years older than me, her saying, why do you get away with everything when you don't, when I don't do anything? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know, sis. But when I was in rehab and she came to visit me, I told her, it finally caught up with me. Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I got an older brother, you know, same kind of thing. And he, a normie, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, did we grow up in the same house? It's like, what the hell? Right. Yeah. 
It's uh, wild. That is wild. And I can relate on the, uh, yeah, get the three drinks in them and they change. Um, I, I, near the end of my run, I almost start seemingly seeking that out, it seems. Like, you know, we choose people that are the counterpart to us, really, even subconsciously. It's the energy we put. I'm completely convinced. It's whatever our spirit and energy is putting off, that's what we attract. And boy, I was a magnet for relationships, you know? Yeah, me too. And enabling, like I'm thinking of my, my last serious relationship was, you know, he was so kind and would say things like, you're so talented. Why aren't you auditioning? Why aren't you doing this? And I remember seeing his eyes glaze and then it was, you're fat, you're not, no talented. I don't know why I'm with you. But that enabled me to be like, well, then I'm calling the dope man because I can't deal with you. Mm-hmm. And so I would get cocaine. And it was this cycle, like exactly what you said. Like it was like my disease was seeking out the thing that I needed to keep me down. Oh, God. Yeah, it's so many. I forget who I was talking with this about. They're like, I don't understand you know, these relationships with domestic abuse. I'm like, well, let me explain a thing or two to you. And it's really how it goes. It's like the story of, well, there's a couple fighting. The lady calls the cops. The cops show up and they go to take away the man in the relationship. And then she gets in a fight with the cops because they're going to take him away. Yeah. It's it's this disease loop that we can get in. And it just seems to be a byproduct with every substance abuser I've ever known, let alone, or let alone if it's sex and love addiction. And I've seen it with friends that are in recovery for gambling or debtors anonymous or whatever it is. It just seems to go hand in hand. It's true. It's true. And my mom, I remember her saying to me something like that, like, Oh, well, if I, if anyone ever hit me and I say, you just don't get it. You're lucky that you don't get it, but you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people don't. Fortunately, they don't. Uh, you know, I'm. I. I. I think they're incredibly blessed to never have to cross that threshold in life for sure. But you yeah. said something really interesting. Your family, parents being religious, religious, and you know, you being gay. Like, was there? Was that another part of the white picket fence? Like, Brian, you don't don't talk about that, or we can't tell anyone because imagine what the neighbors will think. Right. Well, I didn't actually come out to my parents until the year is I was already I'd already graduated college. I was working as an actor and I, you know, it's funny. People will say to me, how could they not know? A mother knows. But I didn't even know. Like, I didn't really know for a very long time there. So I'm 47. So I, I, you know, I grew up in the 90s and there were no touchstones for me. Like I did not understand, you know, the gayest thing I watched was the golden girls, you know, it's not even gay, gay. but like, uh, I, I knew that I was attracted to men and I knew that I had never heard people talk about that. And so I didn't even get the birds and the bees talk much less the, the homo birds and bees, like, I get the hetero birds and the bees, you know? And so uh, it was, I didn't even know what to talk about if they would let me talk about it, right? Mm. And when they found out, it was, it was dark. It was dark. And then we didn't talk about it. It was like, we didn't speak. And then we spoke. And then it wasn't brought up again for... 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I look back on that. I said, no wonder I was a drug addict. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true. These are the things that we need to be able to get out to those that we trust the most. Yeah, for sure. And I, I did start to talk about it in college. I, I grew up in a very small conservative town in Mississippi And I went to community college. It's a very big thing down in the South. At least it was in the 90s. And I went to an even smaller town for community. (laughs) I started to talk about it. And I remember my first boyfriend. Again, I I don't remember if we said this on camera or before. Like, my life could be a Lifetime movie, to be honest. Like, I think people would be like, this is the cheesiest Lifetime movie. But it's true. Like, my first 
I don't think we were even boyfriends. He went to this church in this small town that was like, like the snakes and like, I'm like, no kidding. Like it was like the church. And I remember his mother, I can't believe I'm telling the story. (laughs) Like walked in on us. And I remember like the next day he was like, you're a sodomite. Don't come near me. He like put sodomite on my car. Uh, I don't even know what you asked me that let me tell. No, no. But it was like really, you know, it was uh, it was a tough experience and I didn't have context to talk. I didn't have. Oh, now I remember what we were saying. I had no one to talk to about that. Yeah. I don't even remember the first time I told that story to anyone. I think I was in my 30s. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's. That's these tough traumas that we go through while you're telling it, telling it. I mean, you know, hitting all those empathetic spots in me, you know, I was like, what a traumatizing thing to go through with like your first love. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's all right now. I think he, he does drag on cruise ships. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder, I do wonder now like what his relationship with his family is. Um, they certainly didn't like me, but uh, today mine with my my family is good. We're good. Yeah. It took, you know, a group family session in treatment where I said to my both my parents, I said, I don't think I can stay clean if you don't start to accept me for who I am. I now know that I can stay clean through anything. But at the time, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I just remember my mom taking this beat and she just said, okay, then. I accept you 100% every every part of you. Yeah. What a miracle. Yeah. At the end of the day, we we you know, it's what a fortunate thing you got there and I, you know, growing up in a home of addiction, I always knew my mom loved me and my dad loved me, but you know, he loved himself more, let's be honest. The addicts were selfish and it wasn't until I got a little older and him in my 20s and him and I developed a relationship to be able to realize how fortunate I am when so many people never get that opportunity to just be like, look, you guys created me. I didn't, I didn't ask to be here. I'm grateful I'm here, especially now in life. I'm incredibly grateful, but you know, like I, I need to be loved for, for who I am. Like, you know, there's a difference between parenting and being a judgmental prick. And (laughs) you know, I, I don't need the prick part anymore. You know, it's okay to, chew my ass a little bit out of disappointment, but come on. Something you said really made me that they created you. My, there's a, you know, in the South and particularly in religious families, I'm not religious, even though I did grow up with religion, that fact that they had created me made it even worse for them because they thought they had done something wrong Oh. Um, and something they kept saying is that we did this to you. We created you. We're, we did something wrong. And, you know, that helped me forgive them. And, you know, when I came out, my mother told me that I was going to go to hell. That's what she said when I came out. And I'll tell you, the way I was able to forgive her was to understand that she believed it. Mm-hmm. And I said, that must have been so hard for her to think I was going to burn in hell for eternity. And uh, that really healed my past. It did. Yeah. Wow. Kudos to you. That takes a lot of strength to be able to to realize that. But it's that hard thing where we have to accept our parents are just human too, right? Damn it. (laughs) Uh. It's true. true. Knocking Doors Down by Carlos Vieira. Now available wherever you get audiobooks. I wasn't done partying, and I didn't want the binge to end. I think I knew that when I finally got home, I'd have to face what I had done, and I wasn't ready to do that. Being responsible for my actions wasn't something I was looking forward to. I had abandoned my wife and baby, my family, and my business. I wanted to avoid the shame of returning to what I had left behind. Even though I was not yet going home, I wasn't sure I had enough resources to continue the binge. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. (laughs) Well, I was talking because, you know, before we got on, I'm a parent and I'm like, God, I hope these kids understand that at some point, you know. 
I'm just a human uh, after all. It's okay. That's um, how then, you know, a lot of our recovery modalities that are out there, you know, and I'm a firm believer in it. That the, I mean, you know, the data will show the two best things to help people in recovery is a strong community and, and sense of a higher power. How did you struggle with that? I mean, are you an atheist or is there something like you found what God, a higher power means to you? You know, I struggled with it before I got clean, if that makes sense. I think no, that same. I, I was so uh, willing. I got, just got chills. Like I was so willing once I went to rehab, to treatment, and I got clean. So I, I, I moved to New York, moved to L.A., and I went back to Mississippi. I said I would never do it. And so I went to treatment in Mississippi at 38 years old. And I went to a state-run facility that I'm so grateful for that was filled with religious volunteers from AA. And, you know, they would do their best because they would get in trouble because they would start talking about Jesus. And, like, mm. I was told, I walked in and I said, look, I don't believe in God. They're like, okay, well, you don't have, you can find your own higher power. I said, okay, all right, fine. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then one of the first meetings I went to, someone asked um, about God as we understood him, those words. And someone said, why is it God as we understood him and not just God? And this guy, this human, right, this human being said, well, that's the dark side. I was like, the dark side, <laughs> all that religious trauma. And I almost left treatment that day. And thank God someone showed me AA for atheists or AA for agnostics. I can't remember the, I, the like, and that reading that helped save my life that day because people, a person, their beliefs, I think almost killed me, but the actual like recovery literature like the truth like the literature means so much to me in in, in 12 step um that i was like able to say okay this is what they this is the truth and so i tried everything doing the next right thing was my first god um i could really get behind that i've been doing the wrong thing for so long that like doing the right thing felt so good and then uh you know, they said group of drug addicts, group of drunks, good orderly direction. I tried all those on. And uh, then I went through a period where I was like, God, this, God, that, God, this. And that same person was like, I can't believe Brian Wisnant saying God. <laughs> I said, well, it's just a word. It's just a word. Um, but I would say, you know, like, God for me today is very fluid. And I I love that. um I'm a big NA person, and I love that it talks about how we can re-examine our relationship to God. Um, I rely on that heavily. But before treatment, I mean, I wasn't, I still get confused which one is which. I think I was agnostic. I don't right. think I even had an opinion right. on God because I believed that God was condemning me to hell. Uh. Yeah. But once I hit those doors, I was like, let me give this a try. I mean, I've been homeless for how long? I've been, I haven't eaten in a week. Uh, let me try this God thing on. So, yeah. Uh, and I can relate. Like I told people, you know, I had somebody, you know, once like, come on, brother, God's looking out for you. And I said, I believe there's a God, but I just don't believe that he loves me. Mm, I get that. Cause I, I just felt, I felt no sense of purpose. I thought that my, 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 my run in this life was to just, experience a bunch of pleasure didn't know what genuine joy was that that's for other people and to you know like when i so tell me if you have other newcomers it's a well i had one guy i got a problem with the steps well why is that well you know the god ones and i go god's in all of them you're screwed <laughs> and at the end of the day think about how much a problem god has with everything you've been doing <laughs> that's good and, and he's like oh you know oh shit and i went all right you're going to get the Obi-Wan Kenobi speech. 
It's like the force, my friend. Think of it like, you know, what is it Obi-Wan says? It it surrounds us. It binds us. It penetrates yes. us, you know. And that's what it is. Like when I started to think of it as this as as something that could flow through me doing the next right thing. And that wasn't when it became no longer me listening to me, but to something else to guide me to do the next right thing. It was like, oh, wow. Next to the hitting my knees for the last time, asking, you know, asking for help and stumbling upon two gentlemen's numbers that stayed on the phone with me till early in the morning. Um, that was the second spiritual awakening was like that realization. And I do my best to live life that way. I mean, I'm only human and I forget, you know, sometimes I get in my own way. Um, same, same. But that's how I had to kind of started to look at it. Like, you know, look at it like the force. Like you're a Jedi. You want to do the good things, you know? I don't know. The force is good. Like I even think like we even a couple of times we've been talking, I I guess I, I feel the presence of God, but it's that force. It's a force. It's like I don't feel like the man with the white beard is here sitting with us or, or whatever beard or I don't know. But like I feel like a moment. It's so hard to make tangible, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. The force. <laughs> I do. I, I do. Yeah. And, and because it is, it's a, it, it's gotta be a feeling. It's, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's like, it's connected to intuition and stuff. You know, there's been so many situations I've had over the, almost the last three years that, you know, after my, my brief, some people say slip, I say relapse, um, that I wouldn't have made the right choice before. And something just spoke to me to get the fuck out of my own way. Mm -hmm. And and it's worked out really good. Like I can think of a few situations, like at direct situations where stuff would have gone really bad. And I didn't go. I didn't show up for that thing. I said no. I made I let whatever my my feeling of loneliness in the moment lapse. Like knowing that this too shall pass. It was, you know, and it's just, I mean, you know, you, you're coming up, what, on a decade sober now? So it's like, wow. you, you just do the work and all of a sudden it's just, you're like, man, I'm a, I'm a different being than I once was. This is kind of cool. I like myself. Yeah, it's true. Now if I could like have those, <laughs> those feelings when it comes to Amazon, <laughs> that's, that's recovery. Like, I mean, I have nine years now and I'm so grateful. Here's another, like, I'm grateful that, that where I'm at now is whether I buy something I need or don't need right now. Like, thank God. I mean, 10 years ago, it was like, I don't even, it's like unbelievable. I didn't even have a roof over my head. Wow. You know, what a gift that spending is the issue today. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, working on my butt and it's the, I think it's the other beautiful part is like we really get to work on ourselves now. It's it's a really beautiful gift when people um, that are, you know, normies for lack of a better term go, you always say grateful, grateful alcoholic addict. Like, why? Why? I'm like, you don't know how much it changed my life. And I was given these tools to constantly self-examine. Yeah. Yeah. I, the whole world would work the steps. <laughs> I think we'd be a better place. But the God thing, you know, that God thing is tough. I'm just really grateful that people, you know, early on, they said, just read the first step. It doesn't even talk about God. Mm. And so I would say, okay, fine. And then even the second step, you know, higher power, it also doesn't talk about God. And then by the time you get to God, you're like, all right, let me just like turn it over. And then it's almost like they trick you. <laughs> 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 uh, well, I think for me, when he's when I started making my list, of, what is that step four and then five and six, you know, and actually making the amends and having to take responsibility for actions. Um, you know, I had a great first sponsor who was like, look, you're you're not gonna get the result you think. This isn't about the result. This is about doing the right thing. And it was the first mm. time that that really dawned on me, like, Man, I you know I need to apologize. Like I'm quick to apologize now. I don't know if this has happened to you. I've apologized to people, and they're like, 
dude, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, I had to for me because it was weighing on my conscience. I have to say something. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, well, you mentioned being homeless. I mean, what, what, what? You mentioned cocaine. I mean, what was it? Was that your primary downfall? You know, for years, I did what I call the alcohol cocaine dance. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, when I moved to New York, moving to New York, I was, you know, I had been working as an actor on tour and I moved to New York right after college. And I mean, the, what cocaine did for me was like, all of a sudden I didn't, I, I didn't care about my body image or the fact that I was gay or that my mom told me I was going to go to hell. I didn't care about rejection you know, there were these things that cocaine did for me on the weekend. And then I would, you know, pull myself together and I would do little acting things here and there. And, but I drank every day and living in New York city. I mean, I think maybe it's like this for anyone, but in a city of 8 million people, it was very easy to find people who drank every day and do cocaine on the weekend. So I thought, oh, this is normal. This is what everyone's does. And in the gay community, it was like very normalized for the people I hung out with. And, you know, eventually I was doing more cocaine as we do, you know, the progression. And then uh, I started, I'm trying to remember, I think I, I asked someone about Adderall. I, cause mm -hmm. I thought I'd heard Adderall was like this, like, I'd done it in college. I guess everyone does it. Like I studied one night on Adderall and I said, I, I'm having a problem with writing and getting things done. And my career is at a stalled point. And I started doing Adderall. And I remember I went to a film festival where I was uh, covering it for, for a website. And uh, I had 10 that was supposed to get me through, I don't know how long. And I took them all that night. And I was so confused because I thought this was like supposed to help me. Like I knew at that point I had a problem with cocaine. So I thought Adderall was going to help me. And when I took all 10, I was so confused. Talk about powerless. I was so confused. And then somewhere along the way, I found out that meth... <laughs> <laughs> was uh, like Adderall times 10. And uh, I uh, I used meth because cocaine wasn't really doing it for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I moved to LA, um, I mean, there's so much that happened to me in New York. I was in a terrible relationship. I couldn't hold a job anymore. And I just started using meth. And I moved to LA and I thought, okay, we're going to do, because I saw in some GQ article that the average man drinks two drinks a day. I said, all right, I'm going to be the average man and have two drinks a day. And I managed that for a little while. And then like the fusion of drugs and sex was already a problem for me. And I remember uh, I'd had my two drinks and I said, you know what? I'm going to have sex. <laughs> and I got on Grindr. And uh, before I knew it, I said, do you have cocaine? The guy said, I don't have cocaine, but I've got something better. And that was October of 2013. I was homeless in February of 2014. Like It took me down very fast, um, very, very fast. Although addiction itself had progressed for 15 years. So it was fast and it wasn't fast. But yeah, that's, that's the story of that. <laughs> wow. Holy heck, man. It's bananas. But I've heard that. I I just had, I don't know if you're familiar with Jamie Brickhouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had him on and, and he reiterated something that a friend of mine who's in recovery and a gay gentleman who had said really kind of the same thing was like all, it was just like, like when I've told them about my group, I live in a rural area. It made sense. Like I was out drinking guys that outweighed me by 150 pounds and it was, you know, very much rugged country guys. And, we, you know, we go hunting like, damn, man, look at the chance. This dude can pound some fucking beers, man, you know. <laughs> and so I was looking for a lot of that approval, of course, as we all do. Right. You know, we're looking for that external solution. 
And I could relate what, what you're saying. Like it, it is, it becomes our bedfellows and it's just the way it is. Jamie was saying the same thing. It was drinking drugs and, and, and sex and how it was. And, you know, it wasn't much different. Like even as a straight man is like, all right, well, I want to talk to the hottest girl in the bar. Give me two shots. Then I will. She rejects me. Don't worry, because second hottest girl's over. You know what I'm saying? So it was all just kind of there. It was always this constant looking for validation and an outside solution and that that loop that we get stuck in. Yeah, totally. And then for me, and I think for everyone, I mean, we talk a lot about trauma. Yeah. I mean, there was the immediate of all the things you were just describing, like what would literally happen in the bar or on the app or at someone's apartment. But it was really covering trauma, childhood trauma, Mm -hmm. rejection from my parents, religious trauma. And it just like came to a head when I got clean. I mean, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful that that seemed to have... it shook me to my core to have been enough. And that's why I do all the things that I do every day, because I never want to have to see how much worse it could get because it was so bad. Yeah. So bad. Well, and you make it such a good point about trauma is, you know, people always seem to think, I mean, tell me if, if this resonates with you, that it's like the big T trauma and it's not always the case. I mean, it could be the, being rejected by the cute girl in grade school. It could be the, I don't know, you had your heart set and your parents seemed to be telling you that they were going to get you that thing you wanted for Christmas and they didn't or whatever it is. Uh, You know, there's so many different things. And of course, in our addiction, there is no way we will escape without additional traumas. Oh, yeah. And promiscuity I'm sorry, people. I know we have a society that just wants us to stoop whatever, like it's <laughs> like this is life's reward. No, yeah. it brings a lot of damn consequences. And that's that's where I've had to do the most work on myself to have a good, solid relationship that I am bonded to another person. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, I we could I could talk for an hour about what you just said. <laughs> I mean, for me, yes, absolutely. Um the promiscuity part. I mean, so for me, you know, I, you know, getting into a a relationship or dating or sex, you know, I, there's this message that I'm, I think that I'm supposed to be this promiscuous gay man who is just like revved up sexually. And I completely understand why we gay people are specifically very sexual. Like we were denied who we are, this ability to be who we are. And so I experimented with promiscu- promiscuity and I'm all about sex, sexual positivity. But for me, it was, uh, it's a hot damn mess. Let's just leave it. As my friend, he put it, he goes, you gotta remember it's men attracted to men. And that made the ultimate sense to me. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I extra get it now. It's like, that makes total sense. Okay. Yeah, it does. Oh my gosh. All right. We'll leave it there. (laughs) People are like, all right, you you, you have hit the threshold of of where the talk should go. Yeah. Oh shoot. Well, let's get in more of the, uh, the acting career. I mean, you come out to LA, then you end up back rehab, Mississippi. You're in LA again now, right? Uh, I am, yeah. So what was the transition after uh, rehab and coming back out West? You know, it was, it was tough. You know, I, I honestly thought that I, I was leaving all of it behind. You know, I had so many close calls in New York. I, I would have, you know, c- great callbacks for Broadway shows and for film and, I'm almost grateful that it didn't happen for me because I didn't burn any bridges, any major bridges. I I burned a few and I've had to make some amends. I mean, I really have, but I, I thought it was over and I had a therapist, my therapist in treatment. He was, I'm going to say he's a godsend because 
he was only there as an intern working at Ole Miss. Well, he was a student at Ole Miss, a doctoral student of psychology. And he was only at that treatment center for that month that I was there. How can you not say so when I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, okay, Brian, remember that when you don't believe in God, remember, remember this moment. Uh, he said to me, it doesn't have to be over. I said, no, 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 it's over. I'm in Mississippi. It's over. He said, well, is there something that maybe you could work on here? And I had had the script that I had wanted to adapt, Wrath Mercy, forever since college. I saw the play in 1998. That's how long ago it was. And I tried to adapt it for myself. And uh, I pulled it out and I looked at it. But, you know, the community theater there, I humbled myself. You know, I was a professional actor and I humbled myself. I mean, I... The Brian of 2012 would have been like community theater. I think not. No, <laughs> right. but I was beyond grateful to play the bellhop and lend me a tenor at Oxford <laughs> theater, Oxford. I was grateful and believe it or not, there's a thriving film community in Mississippi. A very, I mean, you, mm. I, you, you saw my movie. That's almost all uh Mississippi crew. And so, uh, I just started easy does it. I mean, it's the principles that we learn. I applied, but I'll be fully honest. I still didn't believe when people would say lost dreams awaken, new possibilities arise. I said, not me. I'll believe all the other stuff you have to sell me. I never have to use again. I never have to lie again. You know, my dreams can come true. I can start paying my rent every day. Those were the only dreams I had. But that dream, acting, directing, writing, no, no, that's not for me. I am emotional thinking, like saying it, because I didn't believe it. And to be honest, it started to happen first. I mean, I I still can't believe it. I still can't believe it. Uh, But people gave me a chance. I mean, I programmed movies for Oxford Film Festival, which is this beautiful film festival in Mississippi. And... I talked about Wrath Mercy forever and the the executive director said, well, why don't you direct our community film? I said, I can't direct. I, I only direct theater. I've never directed a movie. She said, well, you want to direct this movie. You need to direct a movie. <laughs> and, so I, I, and so they literally gave me this huge budget. I was mentored. I did a terrible job. Somehow the movie turned out really well. Uh, it's called The Golden Years. It's this sweet little movie. And, you know, I, to be honest, to answer your question in the most simple way, it was all against my will. Talk about God's will. If I had had it my way, I never would have acted again. I never would have directed my dream project. But eventually I got on the train and it uh, it, it took me to where I'm at today. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing. It gave me some chills in that. And uh, hey, looking back at that movie, um, you obviously did a good job, but the film turned out pretty well. Little credit there, Brian. Come on. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. I will accept. Thank you. Yes, you're right. How about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the Race to End the Stigma, the Race for Autism, and the Race to Be Drug-Free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. Well, let's jump to the, your dream project. Wrath Mercy, you brought it from the stage to film. Finally, I mean, geez, uh, what, 20, what, let me do my math, 22, 23 years later? Yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> Maybe longer. I honestly, as soon as I saw it, I can still remember watching the play. Mm. I almost immediately thought, that's a great part for me. <laughs> And I and I I knew I wanted to do movies, even though I my career was mostly in musical theater. But I always thought that would make a good 
play for me. And then I said, you know what? I think I'd like to adapt that into a film for myself. But what's so funny about it is the lead character, his name was Nigel. He uh, was a straight guy. He goes to this club and gets high on ecstasy and he does something bad. I don't want to give away too much, even in the play. He like steals something. I'm already saying too much. He like steals something and he he shows up and there's this mysterious woman standing in the middle of his apartment. And I still remember that visual of the play. And I started to adapt it in 2006. I, I reached out to the playwright. His name is Benjamin Craven. Uh, I said, Ben, I need that play, Wrath Mercy. He's like, I don't know where that is. It's in a box somewhere in my basement. I said, I need you to find it. I mean, this was almost 10 years later. So he found it. And I still have that original that he like scanned to me. I mean, this is the dark ages of 2006. Uh, And I started to adapt it. And he became Adam. And he became a drug addict. And the great mystery to me is that Adam became a drug addict before I knew I was. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I still can't believe it. Talk about denial. It was like the hope. It was almost like this thing inside me was trying to get out. Mm, mm. You know, the real me. And the only way I knew how to speak truth was on the page, you know, on the page. And uh, I promised that role of the woman. She was, she was called the woman to probably 20 different women drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this this movie for you. And um, yes, when, when the, when the therapist suggested I bring it out, um, I did like, I considered it, but it really didn't get moving again um, until I met my co-producer, whose name is Glenn Payne and our star, Natanya, Natanya Ross. Of course, former guest on here, Natanya. I mean, life of uh, Alex Max, all that stuff, and yeah, yeah. Um, and she was great. And it. it was it was incredibly well done. I was um, that's interesting. You got the script. So from the playwright, was it like all the stage direction, dialogue, everything, and then it was that complete transformation and ad- adaptation from there. I'll tell you how I. So I struggled with the adaptation. I had never. Adapt. No, that's not true. When I was 15, I actually adapted uh, this little book called Trick or Treat, this young adult novel. I reached out to see the things you can do when you're a kid. You don't even know you can do. I adapted this little book, Random House or Scholastic. I can't remember. Let me do it because we wouldn't make any money. And so I adapted this little book into a play when I was 15 and I directed it. It's the first thing I ever directed. So uh, other than that, I had not I had no experience. And so what I would do is I would I would type it and try to adapt the play. Mm. And then uh, I was really struggling. I was afraid to make him gay, which talk about childhood trauma. Like I was like, oh, I can't maybe maybe we'll just insinuate that he's gay and not make him gay. And and then I was like, should it be meth? Should it be this? Should it be that? And I read an interview with Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight. And he was talking about how he finally got to the point of being able to adapt it when he let it go. Mm. And I said, okay. And I was at a conference working for a treatment center and I had the, I had the play in my bag and I read it. And no, actually before I read it, I said, this is it. This is the last time I'm ever going to read this. And I read it. And I put it down and I pulled out my computer and I wrote Wrath Mercy in 10 minutes. Wow. Now, obviously, it's it evolved. There were continuous yeah. drafts. Like there's the scene with the drug dealer was not there. It was just the scene with Adam and Irina. But it was like I just had to let it go. And so that's how I adapted it. And I've not looked at the play since. <laughs> I haven't looked at What's the plan with the film? Are we going to get it out there to more people, some film festivals? What are you going to do? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm submitting to film festivals all over the country. I've submitted so far to 14. Uh, My goal, I have 50. I have a list of 50 film festivals and, you know, I should know where we're going to premiere maybe, but I don't know the time when this would air. I'm supposed to hear back by December 2nd for one, December 4th for another 
I don't know. I, I'm just kind of, uh, it's a struggle. I mean, it's my, talk about my personal recovery, like this whole letting go of expectations and admitting powerlessness and accepting that, you know, the movie will go where it needs to go and trusting God's will for the film is very hard. But, you know, I, I want the film to be seen. I don't think there's ever been a movie quite like this that shows the gay experience on crystal meth. And uh, people who've seen it, particularly who work in the treatment industry, have said, you know, you nailed it. You nailed it. You nailed it from the trauma to the drug use, because there's explicit drug use in the movie. Uh, I want people to see it and I want it to help people. And so that's what I'm trying to put into the universe is for the film to be seen and to help others. And to know where to submit it to. Isn't it funny how everything's about recovery? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's all about it. But yeah. you're right. And I think that's the thing that I've had to accept is I've had points where it's like, oh, do I keep, do I keep, you know, is, am I supposed to be somewhere else? I and mean, granted, I do four of these podcasts. I work for a nonprofit parents and addicts in need. So I'm, you know, involved with treatment, but it's like, oh, you know. Gosh, do you keep going with things? But every time I put something out, somebody says, thank you, that episode helped. And the other day I'm sitting there and I open up the the YouTube channel and talking with my girlfriend and I just go, holy shit. And she's like, what? And I go, um, last month, and it's between new episodes and, and previous episodes. I'm like, we it got a quarter of a million views. Wow. I'm like, I don't know what I did different. Maybe that's just the way of like, hey, I'm going to fluff your ego a little bit here. Keep going. Uh, but it was like, what the hell? You know, and then lots of comments. Hey, thanks. It was, you know, wow, you got Charlie Sheen to talk about his addiction. That really helped me. Whatever it is, you're like, wow, you just never know where stuff is going to land and win. And it's just, I think it's that thing. You sound like you have it. I, I have it where it's like, I just have to do this because it's what I have to do. Right. Oh my gosh. You nailed it. Yeah. I had, I mean, I had to do it. I had to do it. And the, the, the means were given to me from something greater than myself. I mean, even raising the money, because I was watching Natanya's episode. And I think when you filmed, we were raising money and my producer, I said, should we have two budgets, like the dream budget and the realistic budget? He said, let's just go for it. And then like almost immediately he was like, but you need to be aware that you're never going to raise all this money. And then we did. <laughs> and we did. I mean, so why, like, I look at that and I see how that was able to happen. And how I was able to find Matthew and Natanya get, getting her to act again in a substantial role for the first time in 20 years. I know she had done one other small thing, but, uh, and, and to rely on that same faith. Like, I think I can be very quick to forget what the gifts that have been given to me, even with my own film. So why would I be let down with what's going to happen next? I'm not. Even this conversation is just like a dream. I remember watching Natanya's episode with you and it never crossed my mind. Oh, I'm going to be on his podcast. I, that never crossed my mind. But what a gift. I mean, here we are. Here we are. It's and ironically, you weren't introduced to me by Natanya. You were introduced by another friend. That's right. Who I, who I met because I went to a film festival and what I'm so, I'm, I'm, I know I don't seem shy, but I'm very shy sometimes. And I brought another friend along and she said, let's go talk to this random guy in the corner. Well, that random guy is Ben Tuff, who <laughs> connected. We had dinner. He said, I want to help you. He said, I want to help you. And he introduced us. <laughs> yeah. That sounds just like those words right there. I want to help you. That's been tough. Uh, you know, if you want to sum him up in uh, a sentence, I want to help you. That would be him. Yeah. He's a great guy. 
Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend. And don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. The list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. I almost see, you know, it's almost, this has been so fulfilling. I almost don't want to jump to random questions, but we have to, cause it's too damn fun. I love random questions. All right, let's go for it here. Uh, let's see. Uh, what would be something people would be surprised to learn about you? So it could be hobby interest. Uh, you already shared that you're shy. Nobody ever believes that I'm shy too. So, uh, so we'll, we'll ixnay that, but, uh, that's what I would be my answer. Oh gosh. Something that people would not. Oh, that's a really tough question. I think almost everything about me is obvious. <laughs> I love pop music. I love Britney Spears, uh, uh, Pink. Um, yeah, I think, uh, oh gosh, all I can think of is the shy thing. I mean, I tell people that I'm introverted. Oh, here's one. Okay, this is a good one. Um, but when I struggle, um, you can't see it. And so... I remember I, there have been times when I've really been struggling and people won't believe me because I, I wear this, I have this face that I can't get rid of, you know, this face that, that tells you another story. And so, uh, I guess the answer would be that I have hard days too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll throw one in there. You have a shithead cat, just like me. There she is, right there. <laughs> oh, man, for those that are listening, just sleeping on the couch, taking up the good spot. She's been listening to every word, trust me. <laughs> uh, I've had that cat 16 years, and I've been clean nine years and was homeless with that cat. That's a whole other podcast, I tell you. Ooh. That is a whole nother. We got to find you a podcast for animal lovers. That's a story and a half right there. They might not like that I had her homeless, but... uh. I make amends every day. <laughs> it gets the good food. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, dinner with one person, any one person living or not, who would it be and why? I would, I would have dinner with David Lynch. Mm. Very good. You know, David Lynch is probably my greatest inspiration. Well, oh God, I wish I could cheat and say David Lynch and Chris Carter because the X-Files and David Lynch have made such an impact on me as a filmmaker. It's all over Wrath Mercy. You can see X-Files, you can see David Lynch. And uh, I almost wish, I mean, I don't think David would actually talk to me about any of his movies, but that's what I really want to talk to him about. He'd probably talk to me about the most random things, but to sit with him would be such a gift. That would be a gift, yeah. That's it. You know what? I need to go back and watch it now because you did have a lot like the lighting in Wrath Mercy was really interesting. A lot of the shots. Now that you say that, it kind of does have a bit of a I, I couldn't put my finger on it. Like, you know, it it felt dream sequency. No, it felt very sci-fi in look in some ways. Now that you say it, I'm like, oh damn. Wow. Okay. I see that. Yeah. Well, it was important for me to tell a story about addiction in an entertaining way. And sci-fi is so important to me. And I know that it will make the film. It's not going to be for everyone. David Lynch is not for everyone. Right. Um, but, uh, but it's for me. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, bad habits. What, what's one bad habit you have? I had to accept that boy sh getting like off of sugar has been the hardest thing for me. Uh. So I, I have a caffeine problem. I really do. Like I have this habit. I will drink like an energy powder and then have my double caffeine coffee. And then I'll add like the caffeine mushroom to my coffee. That's a bad habit. And I've convinced myself that I need it. Um, another bad habit we, we alluded to earlier, which is, uh, buying things that I don't need. And I think it, actually I have this fear of running out. And I think a lot of people who used to be homeless have this. Um, and I wasn't even homeless for long, not to minimize it, but like, I see I'm just justifying everything. <laughs> yeah, stop. Yeah, stop. Yeah, stop. That's the bad habit. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, and I can understand that. I, 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 I mean, I was never homeless per se. I did have moments in college of having to sleep out of my car, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I think when we're in those scenarios and we, in the, you know, we come from moments of such a bad place that it's like never again, like people are, have been amazed at, you know, I always had a work ethic, even when I was in deep in my addiction, but like now it's banana sandwiches normally six, seven days a week. And it's just, I like, like no one's going to give me the success. Like, no one was going to give me hitting my knees, asking for mercy and grace and everything. That's like, you know, it's why I have my saying, no outside solutions to inside problems. Like I don't look for anything else. Like I just, I just don't, it's got to start with me. That's where the results are going to come from. And, you know, so I have to, I have to keep going. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for saying that. That helped me a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. All right, another fun one here, pet peeves. Oh, I hate honking. That's an easy <laughs> I, So I live, I mean, I'm not going to tell everyone exactly where I live. I live in Los Feliz and there is a turn light. Okay, this is really a pet peeve that you can barely see unless you live here. And the Greek theater's here, the Griffith Park is here, and the honking starts. Honk, honk, honk. And I just want, I imagine going outside and just screaming at people. I actually, I'm going to tell the truth. At one point I have yelled, stop. <laughs> because yeah, that's going to help. <laughs> but, oh. It's my biggest pet peeve, honking. I hate honking. Uh, well, you and I both living in California too. I don't know when the, the blinker thing just stopped working. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's like, come on. I don't mind letting people in, but can you give me a heads up? Would you? I'll do almost anything for someone who uses a blinker and almost nothing for someone who doesn't. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. With all the construction. So I've told people that are out of state, like the whole state is under construction. Our brilliant governor. I won't go into politics because I'll get too pissed off. You know, it's like, ah, I've screwed up your state. Well, I'm going to use all that infrastructure budget at one time. And so the whole state's under repair. And it's like, yes. Come on, when people did this make you more of a jackass when driving, just use your signal. I don't mind letting you in in traffic, but if you don't, sorry, I'm not going to. Like, yeah. it's not a little courtesy. I see you. We are on the same page. <laughs> All right, last one. Uh, what occupation? Well, I mean, you're working in treatment now, but you're also, you know, doing, doing filmmaking, art. But uh, is there any other occupation that would interest you to do if you could? If money was no option, time was no option, you just got to go and try and suck at it at first. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think there's a part of me that would like to be a teacher. I can see that. I, when I first started working as an actor, my very first acting job or second job, we did, uh, it was really cool. It was for a place called Nebraska Theater Caravan. They're still around. And we would do um, Broadway caliber shows in these tiny towns in Nebraska. And so we did the kids show, the intermediate show and the adult show. And we also did theater education for both the little kids and the teenagers. And when you asked that question, I could literally see myself doing that again. Um, it was so tough. But when you see the little kid, when you see yourself in this little kid, and I still remember when it was sparked in me that I wanted to be an actor, that I wanted to make movies. And to know that I had the opportunity to give that to a, to a kid, um, I don't know that that's a profession I I would like to consider. If money was no option, or no, like yeah, I'd like to be a well. I'd like to have really good supplies as a teacher because I my sister's a teacher and I'm all I know how much she puts in. Oh, see, that's part of it too. I mean, just being of service and yeah, you know, yeah, teacher. What a shock! That was. <laughs> Rise. I'll, I'll email you a better answer. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's a wonderful one. And, and yes, my, my partner, she is a special ed teacher and I don't know how much, couple thousand dollars at least this year in supplies and everything that's what else. My, sis my sister does special ed. That's what she does. Uh, so you understand all too well then. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think what they do is remarkable. 
Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I always joke with her. Yeah, to be with a guy like me, it's good you're a special ed teacher. Lots of patience, lots of understanding. That's right. My sister has a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, Brian, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, um, great shout out to uh, Ben Tuff for connecting us. He just seems to, as our friendship develops, he knows exactly the people that I want to talk to, and he was dead on right. Um, this is where I give you the floor. We call it the knocking doors down moment. Anything you would want to share with anyone that's out there struggling? We do have people that uh, they have loved ones struggling, or, or you know, this is just a topic that uh, interests them that you might want to share. The thing that I say is that as long as there is breath in the body, there is hope. I know that that can be um, hard to believe sometimes, but it is the absolute truth. I've seen it with myself. I mean, I know I'm sure you have experienced it, but uh, as long as there's breath in the body, there's hope. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. Man, making me cry here. Ah. Brian, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. God, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. On that note, keep knocking doors down, people. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Knockin